this is uh, something is happening outside. Um, the skies over Baghdad have been illuminated. We're seeing bright flashes going off all over the sky. The sky continues to be filled with tracers as uh, the anti-aircraft weapons continue to fire. Another huge, loud burst from the ground. More tracers going up into the air over the city. And um, there's a lot of fire going up. And as I say, these, uh, these bombs continue to uh, come down occasionally on the ground here. There's no sign that uh, any, of the, uh, any of the aircraft that are involved in this, not from Iraq, but from the Allied forces, have, uh, have suffered any damage. Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we got a great episode for you guys. We're capping off the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works series. And I'm honestly sad. <laughs> I'm honestly sad to come in here on the Sunday. It's going to come out tomorrow. And this is it for the Lockheed Martin Skunk it's Works. And been it's been a one really of the, cool journey. It's been a great journey. It's been one of my favorite things to put together ever. Of all the things I've put together for magazines, for the podcast, everything. And uh, talking to these guys has been great. We have Scott Stimpert coming on the podcast in a little bit. He uh, he flew 500 hours in the stealth fighter, uh, the F-117A. We're going to talk about that. Off. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. I think that um, as I've gone through and learned about all of the different planes that Lockheed made in the Skunk right. Works program, this one wasn't the most technically technologically advanced plane necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, maybe it was like, I mean, they're all like technologically crazy. Right. But in terms of the impact that it had and what it did, I think this is the one I, in it's, my opinion, this you, is I know, the one. I know you can argue that, but you have to look at the U2, what that's done, what it's still doing today. The U2 is. Yeah, but it doesn't drop bombs. <laughs> True. You know, I think that in terms of like direct, like dagger to the heart, to military objectives. I don't know. The, the sound of freedom with the R-71. Is pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty good. But These nothing, have all been amazing. Nothing is, it beats the sound of freedom of a JDAM bomb. <laughs> I mean, the, the sound of freedom that that is, is, is serious business. Yeah. And uh, I, have a, I have a fun quote at the end from okay. Kelly Johnson that all we'll right. get to that I think sums up all of these plans. So Scott flew in the Gulf War. And uh, so I want to talk a little bit about the Gulf War before we get to our interview, just so we have a little bit of context. Right. To, and this is kind of like the big, this is the, ta-da, look at our plane, right? We, we've right. been holding onto this thing for, since the early 80s, it was when it was kind of completed. They were flying around in, in Tonopah in the, in, at uh, Paradise Ranch, as they would say, out at Area 51. <laughs> and they were testing it and doing all the things that they were doing with it, earning the Nighthawk name, flying it only at night, right. as we learned in last week's interview, if you haven't listened to that. You're a moron. Go back, <laughs> listen to that episode. It's it's really really good with Jet Crouch, another another pilot of the F one one seven, one of the original cadre. Yeah, one of the original. And it's, but this was really it's where it, it was saw its coming out party, first action, right? Because as uh, as we talked about as we talked about last week with with uh, with Jet, they didn't want to use it. It's they didn't yeah. want to show their hand, right? Right. They didn't want want to use this plane and put it out into the world until they absolutely had to. Yes. And I think as we learn, and we're going to talk about the Iraqi military just a hair and what we were going up against. And this is something, this happened, the, the Gulf War was 1991. Which I'm glad we're doing a recap because I was four years old, Chris. I was 10. I remember uh, watching General Schwarzkopf 
do his uh, mother of all press conferences, which is like this hour long. We watched a little bit. Yeah, this is hour long press conference. He's got like a little metal stick and he's just, <laughs> he seems like a general because he's like, oh yeah, we're going to, this is the troop. We had the, the ratios of the troops and the enemy and all this stuff. It's a really, really interesting, uh, interesting press conference. But I remember watching that. I remember sitting there watching that. I remember watching George Bush announce that we were going to war. Yeah. And I remember my, my grandma and my grandpa be, saying, we're going to war. And there was only one other time that I heard that from them. And it was when 9-11 happened. My grandma called me. She says, Chris, we're going to war. Wow. And if you think about it, for someone that was born in like 1933 and 1932, like they were, imagine how many times they've said that. We're going wow. to war. You know, yeah. they're 10 years old. World War II is going on. We're going to war. We're going to war in Korea. We're going to war in Vietnam. Vietnam. We're go. You know, I mean, all these different things over and over and over again of going to war. They've seen it, so they called me up. Chris, we're going to war. We're sitting in front of the TV. Chris, we're going to war. So we're going to talk to Scott about going to war. He flew. He's going to talk about you know flying the F one one seven. In, uh, in Iraq, over Iraq, what it was like, what he saw. It's a really, really interesting interview. Um, I have a quote from him that I wanted to read before we get into it. It says, I believe it stands today as the greatest secret our nation has ever kept, Scott said. It's the only top secret program I know of that had another top secret one as cover. My thought was that the secrecy would last two years tops. Who would have known it would maintain its secrecy for almost a decade? And this is in reference to the F-117A. That's the right. Hawk. And it basically uh, it remained a secret till they dropped flyers over That's over right. Baghdad. And it's like these flyers had like a little picture of a. You wanted to get it on the T-shirt. I thought it would you be can interesting. Get the, the, I thought it would be interesting to see it on a T-shirt. Basically, what it is is it's in. Is, I think it's written in. And, oh, I can't remember what language it's written in, but it just basically says. It's give an up. Arabic script. Yeah, it, it says, just says give up. Well, it's. <laughs> Yes, it says, it shows the Nighthawk, and it says, save yourself, the war is already won, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, the war is already won. All right, so before we get into a little bit of uh, touching on the Gulf War and what that was all about, what have you got for us? Yeah, let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Petrol Box. Petrol Box, as you know, is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications. They send it all there right to your doorstep. It's a curated selection of kind of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. You always get the newest stuff. And there's actually different two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout. That'll get you $6 off your first order. I hope we get another hoodie because I destroyed mine working on the 911. Yeah, I saw that. I did. I destroyed it, and uh, <laughs> which makes my wife very unhappy because it's essentially, she wears it. She steals everything out of the box. Anyway, she, there's like an interior cleaner. Yeah. She took it and is using it in the house, so I don't have- Oh, really? Yeah, she takes she takes everything. So always get good stuff in there. It's, it's nice. All right, uh, the Gulf War. What was the Gulf War over? Right. When you look, uh, you think you see all the protests and everything that's going on. Well, what I know was it? there was a lot of controversy that we just wanted the oil. Right. Which is probably true. Right. But it on its surface was a humanitarian effort. At surface, it was a humanitarian effort. Oil. The thing is, is when everybody goes, oh, yeah, war for oil, no blood for oil. But you have to keep in mind that the entire world is depending on the petrodollar. Right, they're, they're, the petrol dollar. The petrol, yes, that's one of the reasons why the entire economy cares about the price of this, oil and what's going on with is oil. This something you get in the petrol box? It is not. <laughs> it is. It is not. Okay. So the the 
the entire world runs on petroleum. So the stability of petroleum prices is very, very important to the health of the economy of the world. Right. So that's part of it, right? Okay. We have to know that that's part of it. You have to just accept that. Yes. And for some people, it's worth the blood. Some people say it's not. You know, there's protests. Because the criticism is it's basically just greed is leading to this war. Right. But also, you have to keep in mind their standard of living to take into consideration. Um, are people going to be able to get to work because the gas prices are so high? We already had in, in the early 80s, and I'm sorry, in the 70s, right, we the had the, the gas crunch or the oil oil crisis, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. We didn't want to go through that again. Right. So, but basically what happened is um, Britain screwed everything up again. <laughs> Seriously, okay. if you look at the Middle East and you yeah. look at the way that the, the what they did with colonialism, they went over, yeah. they divided up Iraq. They said the Kurds go over here, uh, every, everybody else go over here, and they divided it up without taking into consideration any predating where people like, actually live, where they lived, or anything yeah. like that. So um, Iraq's dispute with Kuwait has its roots in British decision in 1899 oh, wow. to establish Kuwait as a British protectorate, which basically says, "Hey, you're our colony. We're you're our colony. We'll yeah. protect you." but that's not really how it was like okay. that entire region was kind of part of iraq at the time right so then kind of kuwait became this like <laughs> how is it britain's i guess power to say we're going to carve part of your country out and give it this you separate tell entity that's just what they do okay. they basically they go in there with their military <laughs> and their and their ideals and their sensationalism of their way of life and they go in there and say we're going to fix you right we're going to fix you and then you kind of take advantage of the i don't i don't like colonialism as you could tell um and we're going to take care take care of you and protect you and then we're going to take kind of a little Your as resources. return what does that sound like taxes <laughs> no it sounds like the mob oh well okay yes. doesn't it? it's like hey I, are you walking into their little laundry the, store uh, the whole parallel hey, uh, to hey, the hey. american revolution and well yeah know, think about no just think about the, the laundry laundry place in uh in downtown new york okay and the guy goes hey he walks in hey i see you've got a really uh really nice Nice yeah, laundry place. Be a shame if it get if they get <laughs> broken into, and then Jimmy the lefty over there bashes his bat into his counter. Yep, break. Ah, it'd be a shame if all this went yeah, to waste. So, but if you don't want anything to happen to this, we'll take care of you. You just got to kick it, right? You just got to kick back some money. It's what colonialism kind of feels like. I don't like. think that's what kick it means. You got to kick it. You get kickback. You got to get a kickback with the cash. With the, you got to give a kickback. <laughs> yes, yes. So that's kind of what it feels like. And I so I was never a fan of it. And this is basically what happened okay so um kuwait produces oil through the uh rumalia oil field okay so this is a huge oil field underneath the ground that happens to kind of be close to the border okay and what was happening at the time fact, sorry we're not talking about 1899 anymore we're talking about okay. like 1990 1991 yep so kuwait was drilling they were called side drilling Okay, so they were Ooh. drilling at an angle, yeah. kind of like under the border a little bit to try huh. and get at this oil. And of course, Iraq is like, what are you doing? You can't just do that because the oil field doesn't know where borders are, right? right. It's just this giant lake of of, uh, of happiness. For, I don't think that's a correct Well, it's a giant reservoir of <laughs> Yes, of but petroleum. if they had to drill sideways, then it's clearly not under their borders. Well, it's, it's very big. So it's, it was always up for, it was always up for uh, debate, right? Okay. And this is like, if you have, um, this happens all the time in like Texas. Yeah. So if you own like 5,000 acres of land here and the guy next to you owns 6,000 acres and there's kind of like a little bit, if more of it is on your land than his land, you kind of work up a contract. Right. That says, some hey, sort of petroleum rights. You have some petroleum rights. You work up a contract. None of that was happening. Right. So they were just like drilling, drilling, drilling. And Kuwait was overproducing oil. Ah. 
So they were going against what the what OPEC was setting as the sure. standard, which brought down the price of oil, yep. which hurt the Iraqi economy. I got gotcha. So that's kind of what was going on. And then they came I up gotcha. with this agreement that, well, we're going to give you $9 billion or $10 billion, and then Iraq didn't kick over $10 billion. And that was, a, you know, I think they were short like 10 or 20% on their money. To, okay. to give Kuwait some money. And then uh, two days, or Kuwait was going to give money to Iraq as recompense or whatever. They didn't do it right. Okay. Two days later, Iraq invades Kuwait. Wow. All right. Okay. So they would, they had enough. They were all done. They're just, we're, we're rolling in. They rolled in there. They killed a bunch of people. They took it over. And that's what kind of uh, started Operation Desert Shield. And kind of. Saddam Hussein is in power at this time. Yes. This is full Saddam Hussein in all of Iraq, his. When you say Iraq, this is Saddam. This is Saddam Hussein. So the Iraqi army was formidable and we've talked about uh we talked last episode about how crazy their air defenses were right i think we talked about that a little bit yeah they basically um, had triple they a had guns on top of every single building around huge baghdad. army one of the biggest in the world and you really? don't think about this because you like oh baghdad third world country right. oh but it wasn't really you yeah. know it wasn't really a wasn't really a total toilet um they were hugely formidable they had a million active troops wow. over 4,000 tanks we only brought 3,000 tanks they had hundreds of planes and Kuwaitis uh, the army of Kuwait was very very small in comparison I just imagine basically well, the a, country itself is very small in very comparison. small and it did and plus it was just been carved out like 100 years ago right? right it was relatively new so I wanted to go over a little bit of the uh casualties if you think of Schwarzkopf was saying based on from what I what I saw in his mother of all press conferences when you go up like on a, in a battle like this you want to have uh, five to one odds. So you want to have five troops for every one troop they have, five tanks for every one tank they when have. When you're going onto enemy soil. Enemy soil, when you're the attacker, because you are, you're not in a defensible position necessarily right. when you're attacking. So this is kind of like military 101. You want to have overwhelming force. They didn't. They had two, I think they were two to three under Oh, under wow. the ratio. So they had to try and figure out a way to get this done. So I wanted to go over a little bit of the casualties from both sides, and then we'll get into the interview with with, with Scott, where he can talk about his side of things. U.S. casualties, 148 battle deaths, 145 non-battle deaths, fixed wing lost, 37, uh, 15 of those were non-combat, uh, and that was the entire coalition. The United States lost 28, 12 non-combat, no U.S. losses in air-to-air -air engagements, not oh, wow. zero. All right, Iraqi losses. Oh, go ahead. Yes. I was just going to say, I didn't think of a lot of dogfighting happening in Iraq, though. They had hundreds of plans. The Iraqis I suppose. Did. I mean, they, they tried. you say air to air loss, that doesn't count, you know, ground defense to air. They no. may have shot down no. planes. They tried. Yeah. Well, obviously. <laughs> they tried. Yes. And a lot of the uh, the Iraqi Air Force ran away to Iran. They ran. They they split. Oh, really? They disbanded. Yeah. They wow. just were like, yeah, peace out. These other planes are pretty fast. <laughs> and we can't see them. We can't see them. <laughs> <laughs> so Iraqi losses, and this is somber, okay? 50,000 were killed. Wow. To the Americans, 149 combat, 75,000 wounded, 80,000 captured, 3,300 tanks destroyed, 2,100 APCs destroyed, 2,200 artillery pieces destroyed, 110 aircraft destroyed, 137 aircraft escaped to Iran, 19 oh, wow. ships were sunk. Oh. They got destroyed, absolutely yeah. destroyed. And what this reminds me of is... I always... So here's what's interesting when you look at these numbers. I always thought it's like, well, yeah, look at America's military might. But what you're telling me is we didn't bring everything over. No. It wasn't like we had our full arsenal no. over in Iraq. Not at all. 
No, we didn't. We had uh, we brought um, as you well. You mentioned it before. You know, we brought four thousand tanks. They had four over four thousand. Oh, we you're right. 3, and they 000. lost. 3,300. Yes, they lost almost their entire tank battalion. They uh, lost a ton of planes. All the artillery got destroyed. And (laughs) as you heard in the clip on the intro, nobody knew what was going on. They're just spraying away into the sky. Yeah. uh, And the spearhead of this was the F-117, which nobody had seen before. And one of the men that was flying that night was Scott Stimpert. But before we get to that, what have you got for us? Yeah, let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. Oberk is your source for professional detailing compounds and supplies that is research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product, and they truly are great products. I love that it's a simple, full step, two step process. It's easy and does give amazing finishes. Right now, they're offering 20% off your order when you use the code OVERCREST. The discount code is good not only on OBERKCARCARE.com, but also on DetailedImage.com and CarSuppliesWarehouse.com. Please go check them out today. All right, my interview with Scott Stimpert. Captain Scott Stimpert, thanks so much for taking time to come on to the podcast. I really appreciate you spending some time with us. Uh, thank you, and... Uh and it's been a while since I was Captain Scott Snipper, but um, takes me, <laughs> well, takes, takes in this me context, back. I think it works. Yeah, yeah, takes me back to my one seventeen days immediately. So thank yeah. you. For so that. You flew five hundred hours in the F one one seven A between eighty seven and, and ninety one. So you spent a ton of time in that plane, but obviously you knew how to fly planes before this. What were you flying in the uh, in the eighties that led up to flying the Nighthawk? So. Um, the way the program was designed uh, when I entered the program in the late eighties um, or in the mid late eighties, uh, they, they set a set of requirements for you to get into the airplane. And one of them was you had to be a uh, four ship flight lead. You had to have at least a thousand hours of fighter time, uh, might've even been 1500 hours or a thousand hours in instructor. Um, so with that said, um, I was flying at fours. I had two tours in the F four by that point in time. And that's the I Phantom, right? Yes. The okay. uh, F four Phantom. I was specifically flying the, G model of the Phantom, the one that was tasked with the Wild Weasel or the Defense Suppression Mission. Um, I flew that airplane for a tour in the Philippines at Clark Air Base, and then I flew it for another tour at uh, George Air Force Base, uh, now closed, in Victorville, California. Um, and I was an instructor at the time, um, and um, had about uh, just short of 1,500 hours, I think, before I uh, applied to the uh, 117 program. Did you, at this at this period of time, this is kind of when the F-14 is around too, right? Did you ever get any yoke time behind that? I'm, I'm sorry, did I ever get any? Any time be- behind the F-14, the oh. Tomcat? Because that was so, my favorite plane when I was growing up. Well, that and the SR-71. When I was, I'm an 80s kid, so I grew up like 87, uh, 88. I'm like, oh man, that thing, look at the wings move around. So, so you have to, the answer, the short answer is yes. When I was in the in the uh, PI, when I was at Clark, we used to fly dissimilar combat DACT against the F-14s that would come in off the boat. So they would come into Subic, or the um, carriers would come in, guys would come in, and uh, we would fly against the F-14s both at exercises. Cope Thunder at that time was was um, uh, held at, in the Philippines, uh, or in just DACT uh, deployments, and um, and. Anybody who's flown the F-14 or anybody who's flown against the F-14 knows that there are two wildly different F-14s out there. So if you flew against the early F-14s, kind of the A models with small motors and stuff, um, they were pretty energy limited and not 
um, not that not that hard to beat up on even an F4. Um, the uh, the later uh, F14s with the bigger motors and stuff, completely different picture in terms of the energy fight. So um, so yeah, I flew against F14s and and yeah, we we enjoyed a little bit of success, but it was against the earlier models of F14s. Um, Did anybody the hit the models, brakes and make you fly right on by? Just to, just to, uh, no? no 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 <laughs> Top Gun kind of stuff. But what's <clears throat> so what's what's funny about the the F14 is um, his energy state, right, which is important in air combat. You're always interested in somebody's energy state. His energy state is visible to you in, in the sweep of his wings, right? So when some guy is pulling down around the corner, you're looking down on him, he's starting to bring his nose around, and you see that his wings are slowly sweeping forward. You're like, uh, he's running out of airspeed. So, <laughs> it, it, so there's no question in your mind where his energy state is. Um, and, and so you got a little bit more of a verbal tell with that than you did with other airplanes and stuff. So right. the only time you got to see the wings swing, the wings swing, or when he was slowing down, um, or he was starting to run out of energy, and you knew that that as soon as those wings started moving forward, his nose was going in one direction, and that was down because he was running out of airspeed. So yeah, those things were cool. So you're flying the F four a lot, and you're flying. Uh, I'm I'm assuming the F fifteen as well, right? So so I flew the F fifteen after I flew the one seventeen. Okay. Um, so I, I I spent two tours in the F four. Then I went to the F-117, and when I finished that, then I transitioned to the F-15 um, in uh, Germany. So how did you end up in the, the in the 117? I mean, that's were you like super so, good at keeping secrets? <laughs> like this guy keeps secrets, and then there's this, what's the what's the barometer for getting in to fly one of these? So so at the time, um, uh, since the airplane, since the program was in the black and nobody knew what was going on, um, the only thing that a few people knew was that there were some A7s at Nellis at the far end of the ramp and a, a commander I, I worked for at the time as I was coming up on, on kind of assignment time, uh, was connected to the, was connected to the group was a uh, good friend. Of his was the DO at the time. And, and I had mentioned something about the A sevens and not that long after, uh, I, I got a call, um, from somebody in the group saying, Hey, uh, um, we're interested in you go talk to this guy. So I went to talk to a guy who was the vice wing commander who had just left the group and went to kind of an interview process there. And, and as you can expect on a program that's still classified, they don't tell you anything, right? There's a lot of questions, but there's no information for it. But you got to know something's um, going on, right? It just, it had to have felt pretty weird. It, it, it did. And you had to know something was going on, right? It was kind of like, well, this is, and, and, and they made it pretty clear to you that, that look, I can't tell you what you're going to do, but I can tell you that it's important for national defense, and it's an exciting, uh, it's an exciting opportunity, and it's an important piece of national defense. That sounds well, like a girl playing you know, hard to get. You're just like you're trying to like call her number. Are you there? Hello, what, what's going well, on? Well, you must have really wanted so, to do it. The more they were pulling back on it. Well, so uh, I'm sorry. You tell a fighter pilot that we have something for you that's exciting <laughs> and it's important in national defense, yeah. and you're kind of waving red meat in front of a pit bull. Exactly. So, exactly. Uh, so, so then I, I went through a couple more of the interview process, uh, things where they wanted to make sure that I was, uh, that I was a good fit for the group that I was, that, that, uh, they why were they you a good fit for the group? Why were they trying to recruit you in the first place? Um, I, I think what they were looking for was, um, that's a good question. I think what they were looking for was first off, um, experienced mature instructors, and they knew that a large amount of of time you were going to fly the airplane, both the A7 and the 
the 117, although I didn't know it at the time, but the A7 117, they knew that you were going to spend a lot of time single ship, um, not talking to anybody on your own, right? And and what they were looking for was a maturity level that said, if this guy is off on his own with nobody looking at him in a single ship, can I trust his maturity and his professionalism to the point where he's going to do exactly what I told him to do and he's not out there freelancing or something else? So I think what they were looking for was a level of maturity and professionalism that led them to confidently feel like the guy they were hiring into the program was going to um, was going to have the discipline it took to to execute what they wanted in an environment where you didn't necessarily have a, a bunch of people looking over your immediate shoulder, right? So and I want everybody to think about what they're doing right now. Everybody's probably got their phone in their hand or something like that. I don't think anyone I know can go multiple hours by themselves not doing anything. Obviously, you're doing something. You're flying the plane, but you know, just being with yourself and being your mind and just being so focused for, I'm wondering where my phone is within 30 seconds of putting it down. Well, the, um, so a lot of, uh, a lot of missions that we flew in the 117 were, um, single ship missions. So you're, you're out there by yourself, even in, a, in what we call coordinated singles, or even if, if eight airplanes were going to attack an airfield at the same time, which we did there in Gulf War, um, you're flying your own mission independently, right? So, Unlike a lot of other airplanes, F4, F15, A10, A7, where you're flying visually with somebody and you're coordinating your maneuvers visually with them and, and you're part of an immediate flight, in the 117, you're, you have a specific mission, you have a specific time on target you're going to hit, you have a specific target you're going to hit, and you're expected to be on time, on target, um, independent of everything that's going on around you. So, so what they were... You know, there's, there's a saying that it's easy to be good when everybody's looking over your shoulder, right? Um, yep. Not as easy to be good when you're out there by yourself and, and doing that. And I think what they were looking for was this level of professionalism that said, okay, um, he knows what the mission is. He's, he's serious enough and mature enough that I can count on the fact that he's one of eight. He'll be where he needs to be at, at the right time. And, and, um, and I can rely on that um, 100% of the time. So I think what they were trying to eliminate was anybody – you know, I hate to use the phrase anybody that, that lacked the discipline or anybody that looked like they were. Um, and they didn't want. I'm, they I'm assuming they didn't want hot shots or anything like that. Right. So, so the Air Force, the Air Force pejorative for that, by the way, is cowboy. Um, ah, okay. You, you know, so so the Air, Air Force pejorative is cowboy. I don't want any cowboys. Well, we don't want any cowboys. So, so I think what they're trying to do was screen through those, and and at the time. Um, they also had a process where if you were being considered for, for, um, for selection for the unit, they actually put your name up on a board uh, in the squadron. And you could, when I was in the squadron later on, I had the opportunity to do the same thing. And they put your name up on the board and, and people could walk by and go, you know, not this guy, you know, I've flown with them and you're not going to let, you know, so, so it wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just a screening process that said, how do you look in the interview? But it was also a screening process that said, Hey, is anybody flown with this guy? Does anybody have any professional knowledge of this guy that they want to share? Those kinds of things. So they went to a, a pretty good set of lengths to, to make sure that their screening process um, brought in the right kinds of people and, and equally as important of uh, screened out the, the people that, that were less uh, than desirable for the group. So I'm imagining the first time you see this thing, I don't know if they did it dramatically, like, oh, here's the plane, or if they did something where they park you out 
if the way I would do it, because I'm dramatic, is I would put the pilot out in front of the hangar. I'd blindfold them. I'd open up the hangar doors, and I'd go, ha-ha, what do you think? And then I'd pull your blindfold off, and the and then the Nighthawk would be sitting there lit with lights and with like maybe like a, a cloud machine behind it or something like that. But what was so, it What was it actually like? <laughs> so it wasn't that dramatic, but, but interesting you mentioned that. So here was the the standard drill was that, that you got briefed in the program and then they, they had a, a film and this was old school, you know, 16 millimeter film projected on, on a, a wall, kind of a movie thing. And you sat there with your squadron commander next to you, um, as they briefed you into the program. And then they showed this movie and it showed hangar doors opening up and there was the 117 and, and everybody, the standard joke was that your squadron commander was there. So you didn't go, what the, and, because um, the airplane looks, you know, when you first see it, if you've never seen the airplane before and you're used to what in your mind you think airplanes all look like, the, the front-on view of the 117 is kind of like, really? And then the, the, video, the film showed the 117 taxiing out, and it actually showed the airplane taking off. Because it doesn't and, look and like standard, it should fly. Like, if you think of a conventional right. plane in the, in the 80s, you're like, that thing is a, just a, it's a wedge of cheese. Right. And the standard joke was that the reason that it showed you flying in the movie was to prove to you that in fact the airplane <laughs> does fly. So, so you saw it, you saw it taxi out, you saw it take off and you're like, Oh, okay. So it does fly. But yeah, the, um, it wasn't quite as dramatic. However, the, the film started with a hangar door opening up and all of our hangars at, at the Tonopah had, um, if you've ever seen pictures of the hangars of the 117 in them, they have big American flags hanging down from the top of the hangar. The 117 is underneath the American flag. Um, it is a it is a dramatic uh, portrait by any measure. So you're kind of watching the hangars open it up. Here's this airplane flag hanging above its stuff, and you're like, "Wow, this is this is what I'm going to be doing." And um, and like I said, your squad, squad commander was there just in case you were going to go, "Wait, what?" <laughs> so um, so it, and you're right. In the 80s, um, it was. You know, 80s where, where everything was rounded and uh, smooth, and here's this thing that's all facets and angles and sharp uh, corners and stuff. And you're kind of thinking, um, really? Uh, and then you see a taxi by, and there's a couple angles where the airplane actually looks kind of sleek. The uh, the side-on view of the airplane is a taxi by where you see the skinny waist. You're kind of like, oh, okay, that actually looks kind of sleek. Yeah. Uh, but, but nose on, that big triangular shape you see nose on. Uh, sleek doesn't enter the vocabulary. <laughs> so the, the first flight. Were you? What was flying this thing like the first time? Was it way different than anything else you've ever flown? Was it? Did it handle great, or was it like a school bus, or what was this thing like no, to fly? So, so, to be honest with you, the airplane flies. It's a very honest flying airplane, right? So, um, uh, quad redundant digital flight control, fly by wire flight control system, right? So, um, so you're flying uh, an airplane that has a, a, a programmable flight control system, and which means that that when you throw the stick to the left, instead of being connected to a direct cable that says, okay, left up, your, the flight control system goes, you want left turn, so move this control, you know, off into the left. Um, and, and with, it only took with cars digital, like another 30 years to have that type of technology, right? right I mean, that's right. crazy. So, so um, it's, it's an almost direct lift out of what was in the F-16 at the time. And with a digital flyby-wire flight control system, you can, your handling characteristics are a function of your programming, right? And I'll give you an example of that here in a second. But, you know, this is the kind of stuff that they do when they want to take a Challenger business jet and they want to make it fly like the shuttle, right? So they put the flight control system in and now your flight control inputs all make you think you're flying a shuttle. So 
a digital five-hour flight control system allows you to program characteristics into the airplane. And and the, the 117 was an extremely honest flying airplane. Did they um, give you your own profiles as a pilot based on how you flew? I mean, did they adjust them like per no, pilot? Or no. We- no, that's an interesting question, but no, it's all, it, it's, it's standardized, but, but I will give you one interesting example. So when I first started flying the airplane, um, we were, in, we were flying with what we call the dash five flight control system. And at the time, um, the airplane flew down final at 155 plus gas, right? So 155 plus gas down final, and you had a, a min airspeed and you had a max AOA. So you can't go below this airspeed, you can't go above this, this AOA max, right? What's AOA? And angle of attack okay right? so you can't you can't exceed this particular angle of attack you can't go slower to airspeed and while i was flying the airplane they came out and they implemented what they call the dash 7 flight control system which is increased a better computer and better flight control software and suddenly our landing speed dropped to 142 plus gas right 13 knots off the landing speed we 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 lost our min airspeed restriction at the time and we and our max aoa was raised up now you may not think that's, that's that big a deal, but realize it's not like they added an extra fin to the airplane, right? There's no extra flight control out there. Those characteristics were changed because somebody wrote better software and had a better computer to, to keep up with it. So, you know, here we have an airplane. That Did you like that as a pilot? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so it's a much better handling airplane. And um, and 155 plus gas, so when, when you landed with the Dash 5 flight control system, the chute came out, and, and if you lost the chute, you know, it was a serious thing. If you were jumping on the brakes, and there's a good chance you'd heat them up. At 13 knots slower, suddenly the, the landing speed's slower and everything else. So w- what really struck me about that, what really, t- to this day, I really take away from it is, um, you know, some guy in a lab somewhere with probably big thick glasses wrote some better software and, and said, hey, look, you know, I think we can do this. And suddenly the airplane, you know, lands slower and, and, and flies better. So from a flight control standpoint, it was terrific, and um, and fly-by-wire flight control system also gives you a lot more, a, a lot of interesting capabilities you can filter into the airplane that may not be available to you on non-flight control airplanes. Right. Let me give you two quick. Let me give you two quick examples. Sure. So on the on the one seventeen, <clears throat> when you roll the air refueling door, so you you turn the switch and the air refueling door opened up so you could refuel. The flight control gains dropped by, I want to say, 20%. So what that meant was that you had to work a little bit harder to move the airplane around, and the airplane became a little bit less sensitive in that regime because on the tanker, you didn't necessarily want the most sensitive airplane you could get. So they said, okay, we'll drop the gains by 20% when you roll the air refueling door open, and then... When you close your refueling door, boom, back up the full gains. You know what this plane, reminds you know. me of is Formula One, where you've got a little, like race cars, you've got a little hand, you got a little steering wheel, and you've got driving mode zero, while well, you've got one for the pits, so you don't just, you know, floor it yeah. and run over a bunch of people. Then you've got one, which is like uh, maybe qualifying, which is, did you guys have like a, we're actually at war mode? Did you guys have a Baghdad mode or anything like that? No, not for the flight controls. You had, <laughs> you had, um, you had some things, uh, we talk signature in a second. You had some things you you did in peacetime that you that you did differently in wartime when you wanted to stealth the airplane up. But uh, but as far as flight control modes, no. The and the other thing, the other quick example I'll give you is um, when I was flying the, the um, when I was flying the F-15, we had a flight restriction that said 
you better remember this right, above Mach 1.5, you can't, if you had full rudder deflection, you would, no kidding, bend the airplane, right? So above <laughs> Mach 1.5, full rudder deflection. So in order to keep that from happening, as you approach Mach 1.5, literally a metal hook would come down and grab one of the rudder pedals and keep you from pushing that rudder pedal too far. It was literally a metal hook that came down <laughs> and grabbed the rudder pedal. Now, you know, 117, if they wanted a restriction like that, some guy just typed in a line that said, if Mach equals greater than 1.5, then flight control equals whatever, right? Right, right. So, so you didn't have to have this mechanical hook that came down and grabbed the rudder pedal. So um, it, it, was, it was a great system, very easy airplane to fly, very easy airplane to land, very honest. So your first flight in the airplane um, was was pretty uneventful from that perspective, right? You'd already fly, you already, had already flown the sim, which we didn't call the sim because of uh, classification issues. Didn't call the sim. Um, we called it the ATD. Um, the so you'd already had a, a number of sims, and so you, you had a pretty good feel for for the airplane in terms of procedures, in terms of. of so are you saying it was anticlimactic a little bit? To get um, in, I mean. No, no. Flying a new airplane from a pilot's perspective, flying a new airplane is always a great thing. Okay. It, it just, it, it just, it, it wasn't. Um, you know, there was a there was a line somewhere in the in the mid '80s where somebody came out and said, "Oh, it's the wobbling goblin and so unstable stuff like that." Nah, the airplane was was a pretty honest airplane to fly. You know, went where you pointed it, stuff like that. So, um, but but like every airplane. Like every fighter, doesn't matter if it's an F four, A seven, one seventeen, or F fifteen, flying the airplane is part of what you're doing, right? The rest of it is can you employ the airplane? So um, you can you can you can teach almost anybody to fly the airplane. The question is, can I then employ the airplane the way it's supposed to be employed as an effective weapon system while still flying the airplane at the same time? So so flying the airplane, stick and rudder and, and moving around is kind of half the battle. Now the question is, can I employ it as a weapon system? And make and, it do what it's that, supposed to be doing. Use right. it as the tool that it was built for. Right, right. Make it an effective weapon. System. And it was really effective in Desert Storm and probably... I don't know if you flew any other Cold War missions or anything like that. I think you, you got started, might have gotten started a little late for that kind of thing. But for you, I mean, it was all about Desert Storm, right? Yeah. So, so my combat time all started in Desert Storm. I was, um, I was part of the, uh, a, a part of the initial launch mission for, um, uh, for the invasion of Panama. Um, I was uh, one of the two air spares. Um, so I didn't go, but I was uh, all primed and ready to go. We launched, uh, we launched eight to bring six, right? So you always, you always launch, you taxi more than you launch, you launch more than you, than you have, right? So, um, uh, another guy named Cole Seckler and I were air spares for that sortie. So we were all, you know, pumped and, and ready to go. But it's funny because we both knew Cole and I both knew that there was no way any one of these six primaries was going to fall out short of actual fire in the airplane. Right. So, you know, imagine that, that you're, that you're a football player and you're on a starting team and, and you're going to the, to the Super Bowl, and some guy is like your immediate replacement. He goes, Oh, if you, if you hurt your leg or anything, I'll, I'll come in for you. And you're going to go, yeah, right. I'm not, <laughs> I don't care if I'm bleeding, I'm going back into the game. Right. Yep. So, so, um, so we air spared for that turned around and came back as, as we expected. But my first combat sorties were all in, uh, at, at Desert Storm. That was my first uh, introduction to can the airplane really do it? Does the stuff technology really work? You know, all those questions that we had um, all got answered uh, 
on the night of the 17th of January. So the, uh, the United States Air Force stated that the F-117 was the, really the only airplane that they dared risk over downtown Baghdad. Why was that? What were the defenses like? What were they, what are they, what do they mean by that? So, so at the time, Baghdad was the most heavily defended, uh, one of the most heavily defended cities in the world. It's certainly, um, certainly, uh, the most heavily defended in that part of the world. They had overlapping, um, what, let me take one step back. So the Iraqis had, had a pretty sophisticated integrated air defense network. Where did they been, get it from? A number of different places. Most of it was Soviet-based. Um, they, they had got some, some uh, third-party, um, uh, what we call gray systems. Um, but for the most part, their integrated air defense network was not only supplied by Soviets, but also mirrored a lot of their doctrine and, and technology in terms of centralization and those kinds of things. And, and that air defense system had been had already been blooded, right? So they've been fighting the, the Iranians for a long time. These right. are people that have been have been working for a bit. So we're talking about a system of overlapping uh, and early those, warning and radar. Let me just say, the, the plane, we gave planes to Iran, or they bought planes from us to, to fight in Iraq. So they were already kind of familiar with maybe not the technology of the 117, but some of the other technology, the planes that we were using. Yeah, they had, they had, um, uh, they had fought a conventional war against conventional, uh, yep. you know, what we call aluminum, aluminum airplanes, and and were, were a veteran air defense network. So here we have an air defense network with overlapping coverage, a, a, an integrated comm system that that's coordinating all of this from centralized locations. They had interceptor operations centers, sector operations centers that filtered all of this information from their air defense and moved the information around, and and they had more guns covering the. the uh, city of, of Baghdad than you can believe. I'll come back to that in a second. But um, so they had this network of, of surface air missile sites and, and integrated uh, air defense around the city of Baghdad because um, that was their center of gravity for a lot of their strategic capability. It was certainly the center of gravity for their for their um, command and control. Um, like Soviet doctrine, they are very centralized in their command and control. They're not decentralized, right? They don't push a lot of, of uh engagement authority down low. They kept a lot of it um, up at the upper level. So um, so the city of Baghdad was extremely uh, heavily defended um, from from the outside edges, you know, all the way in. And a number of the targets that we hit were were uh, downtown, right? We're, this wasn't the suburbs. This was, uh, you know, the downtown inner city kind of stuff. And as far as the, the actual city itself, so Imagine, imagine a large city. I think you're in Minneapolis right now. So, so imagine the city of Minneapolis with AAA guns on top of all of the large buildings. You know, uh, and, and, and it just it, it, it's a sight that surprised me when I first saw it. I don't know why I didn't think about it before, but you have all these buildings, and and on top of these buildings or all around were these AAA uh, guns that were shooting uh, up in the air. A lot of some aimed, a lot of barrage. So. The city itself was extremely heavily defended, um, and if you were going to try and, and drag an aluminum airframe, um, i.e. A, a non-LO type of airframe, down through the middle of Baghdad, you would have a lot LO? of attention. Uh, low observable. Okay. I'm sorry. No so, problem. So, uh, um, so, so typically non-LO airplanes are non-low low observability airplanes. The shorthand is, is they just call them aluminum airplanes, right, to, to right. differentiate them. So if you're going to haul a non-low observable or a conventional aluminum airplane 
through the center of Baghdad, you're going to get a lot of attention from their air defense network. And, and especially the first night, um, it was, it was up and running. It took a long time, um, for the, um, the seed suppression of enemy air defense mission to beat that air defense network down. So, um, so the first few nights, the, the air defense network was, was up and running. They were open for business and, um, bringing in non-low observable airplanes, especially at the lower altitudes and through Baghdad was not, uh, would not have been conducive to, uh, to bring a lot of those airplanes back out. So, um, so it was pretty clear after the first night that, that we could, we could get into and out of that air defense network with impunity. So, um, from that perspective, you had a platform that, that had a precision targeting capability and could penetrate air defense, uh, uh, unscathed, it just became the, the natural player to assign those missions to the 117. So what was your mission? What was your, you know, most memorable mission at, uh, in, in Baghdad? So, uh, let's see. Most, so the most memorable mission of Baghdad was also the first one. So, you know, not too surprising, right? Your first mission is going to be the most memorable. The, um, a couple things. So, we flew what we called the high, low, high profile, which meant that you came in, um, in the low twenties, you descended down as you approach your initial point, which was the turn in point to the target. You drop down to your targeting altitude. Um, and what's, what, what are we talking here about? Cause you're talking about 20,000 feet and you're coming down. Where, where do you typically, you know, engage from with most in general with any kind of bombing run or targeting run like this? So we were, we were, um, well below 10,000 feet on the opening night of the war um, because of weapons limitations and some questions about um, about the not only the weapon we were carrying, but whether or not we could get the accuracy we needed from, from higher altitude. So the first opening night of the war, we were well below 10,000 feet. So you fly this high, low, high profile. So you're in the 20s, you drop down, and then you, um, uh, you run across the target. And then as you clear the target area, then you're high back home. You pick up with a tanker, and you how head far, home. How fast are you shedding altitude here? I mean, are you coming in just super steep to just get there and drop your bombs and get the fuck out of there, or is it a little bit more gradual because you have because it's an LO aircraft? So, so as far as the as far as the cruise profile or the pre-IP profile, so um, so on any on any target run, you have what's called an IP or an initial point, which is your last nav point to get yourself lined up prior to the target. It is typically uh, ballparky around uh, somewhere under six minutes to the target, somewhere around three to five minutes. You, you find a point. That's my IP. I get lined up on my, on my target heading and I run in the, um, uh, as far as the speed goes, you have two things to keep in mind. One is I have a TOT, right? So, I'm flying a route and I'm keeping in mind my TOT and I have to be able to hit that TOT within just a few seconds because my flight requires that. I could have other airplanes in the immediate vicinity. I could have other airplanes at my altitude near me, all relying on me to be in the right place at the right time. Right. So I've got a, I've got a TOT, a time on target that's running through the back of my head. And then um, I'm also flying, you know, a tactical profile that keeps my speed up to the point where I could maneuver if I needed to. So, um, so typically what you did was the air fleet started creeping up as you hit your, um, IP target run. And then, um, I'll be perfectly honest with you. The, 
the IP target run is typically um, a higher speed, right? You're usually around 500 knots in the 117 anyway uh, for your IP to target run. And because of the amount of time that your IP to target run is, you don't really have a whole lot of time in that. You don't have a whole lot of opportunity in that short amount of time to blow your TOT very much, right? So if you hit your IP on time, you're pretty much going to hit your target on time. And what most people I know did was once they hit the IP on time, then they just threw the throttles as far forward as they could get them and just ran as fast as they could on the IP to target run. Um, interesting point, the F-117 had an airspeed limit uh, on it, and if you approached the airspeed limit, the system would say to you, airspeed alert, airspeed alert, right? It would let you know that you're getting to it. And if you exceeded the airspeed limit, the, the system in your head, the warning system in your head would just go, airspeed, 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 and it wouldn't stop until you decreased your airspeed below the, the, the limit. And So it was and nagging looked, you, so, basically. Yes, yes it was. <laughs> and, and I looked at so many tapes throughout the, the, the war, and, and certainly throughout the first day when all you heard in, in the, on the tape was airspeed, 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 because <laughs> everybody was just running as fast as they could. And you knew that in that short amount of time, you weren't going to vary your TOT by more than about three seconds either side. So, so you know, you just you just ran as fast as you could. Now, first night, we fly this this uh, butterfly approach to Baghdad. So imagine that you're going to put Baghdad on your nose, and then at a certain altitude, you're going to turn off to the right. At a certain distance, you're going to turn off to the right, and then you're going to do what is essentially a counterclockwise uh, circle, right? And you're going to approach Baghdad from the north to the south, right? So I'm going to fly from the south and I'm going to do this it, it looks like a butterfly right because half is going one way half is going the other so I, I'm, I'm flying with Baghdad at roughly my 2 o'clock or my 10 o'clock and I'm in the clouds or actually there's a little bit of cloud below me first night but it's a thin cloud there cloud layer I'm sorry my descent down and also my 10 o'clock I see what looks to me like um, like bombs going off or something right because I've seen I've seen bombs going off before. I, I see flashes and stuff like that. I'm like, huh, look at that. Um, something's going on there. And as I start to descend down, it becomes more clear that what I'm seeing is a city with, with AAA going off over the top of it. And, and I saw a couple of SAM launches and I'm seeing all this other stuff. And I go, oh, glad I'm not going there. And, and that thought lasts for about a second before I realize that is exactly where I'm going. That's <laughs> less 10 o'clock. And I'm about... And I'm about to make two left-hand turns and line up on that town. And it, it, it was, I, I distinctly remember it as I'm coming through. I remember the situation where I'm bored. I'm going, oh, I think I'm going in. Hold on. I'm starting to lose so, you a little bit. Uh, the phone, phone, I'm losing you sorry. on the phone. Are you still there? Sorry. I'm still here. I'm still here. Oh, okay. Start, start with, uh, go back like 30 seconds. I'll pay, I'll, okay. I'll fix it in later. Sorry. No problem. So, you know, I distinctly remember as I'm coming down out of the clouds and I'm looking over there, I distinctly remember looking at it saying, oh, wow, glad I'm not going over there. And then a second later, I go, oh, my God, that's exactly where I'm going. <laughs> and and as I as I drop down, turn left, hit my IP, and as I hit my IP, I'm looking at Baghdad, and there's there's um, you know guns firing from every rooftop, and I, I saw a couple of, of uh, sand launches and stuff. And I remember looking at that, conflagration and thinking, is there a line that goes through that 
cloud that does not intersect any of those little tracer things that I'm seeing. <laughs> um, and so, so I come off the, come off the target. So, so into Baghdad, I come off my first target, then I turn slightly and my second target is just south of Baghdad. It's an, an interceptor operations center at a place called Al-Takadum Airfield, just south and east of, or just south and west of Baghdad. So I come out of the city of Baghdad, come out of the city and, uh, in itself, and all of a sudden it gets dark and people aren't shooting at me anymore. I'm like, hey, this is good. Um, so I, I get, I'll talk to the airfield. I can see my target in the uh, in the display. It's up ahead of me. I'm now lined up on, on um, I'm lined up on target. And I'm thinking, okay, nothing's going on here. Nice and quiet. And about 30 seconds or 45 seconds out from the target, um, another 117 who has a target at the same airfield drops his bomb. I see the bomb go off in my display, and then everybody in their mother at at Al Takadim Airfield wakes up and starts shooting up in the air. And, and I'm thinking, this was just such a quiet place 30 seconds ago. <laughs> and his bomb goes off, and then kaboom, everybody shoots up in the air because at the time, um, and, and actually throughout the war, with, with no with no advance radar warning saying, hey, here comes a target, something like that. You know, they're all pointing up in the sky and listening for somebody shooting or a bomb going off or something like that. And as soon as something goes off, then they're all shooting up in the air. So At nothing. Um, At, they're just shooting, right? I mean, they can't see you. It's dark. Yeah. They're just blindly shooting. Right. right. They're, they're blindly shooting up in the air. The, 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 it's actually a tactic. It's called barrage fire. They're, they're throwing barrage fire up in the air with a, with a, uh, a hope of, uh, of you having to fly through to hit somebody. And, and it was, you know, even though it wasn't aimed fire, um, if you're invisible and you're standing on somebody's front lawn when they turn on their sprinkler, um, it doesn't matter if you're invisible or not, there's a good chance you might get water on you. Right. So, um, <laughs> so as you, as we're, as we're flying through this, I, I, um, drop on the ISC, boom, I see it go. And then I, I go blasting off into the dark as fast as I can and then pull up and start my, my profile back home. Did you, at and, any point when you're looking at this stuff, are you, do you think it, do you see it as, you see it as target? Or do you still, in your mind, think you go, wow, that is a city where people are? Does that ever cross your mind, or is it just mission-oriented? So it's 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 very much mission-oriented, um, especially, you know, especially like when I hit the airfield afterwards, right? I'm looking at a large, concrete, reinforced, huge uh, bunkered facility. And, you know, my only thought at that point in time is, is, can I hit it? Will I be on time? And will my weapon penetrate into this and, and do the damage that we're hoping that it does. So you're very much mission focused. You're very much target focused. The, the other aspect of it doesn't really enter into the picture very much for you. Um, and then, um, and then as we're heading home, so one of the things that you mentioned earlier that I was going to talk about is um, once we're on, once we're headed North and we're on pre-strike and we hit our last tanker before we go across the border and head through to Iraq, we do what's called a stealth line check, or we, we, we stealth up the airplane, which means that we, we do all the last-minute things we need to do to make the airplane signature as small as we possibly can. And one of the things that you do is you suck in the UHF antennas from the top and the bottom of the airplane. So this is like when I try to put on the pants that I used to wear that I can't wear anymore. I just kind of suck it in and like try and button my shirt up <laughs> just so I still am looking pretty good. Um. <laughs> I'm gonna let that go. Um, but what it is, but what it is like is so the airplane itself has UHF antennas that stick above and beyond and below the airplane, and those were on on um, 
were motorized so they could be pulled in and stuck out. So at the stealth line, one of the things that you did was pull those antennas in, which meant that not only was the signature of the airplane as small as it could be, but also you had no radio contact with anybody else. You were radio out at that point in time, both transponder and UHF radio. So it was just you, um, nobody else. And that actually had to be an back, incredible feeling. Yeah, it, it got real quiet. And then coming home, once you cleared, um, once you cleared the, the immediate threat area, you could stick your antennas back out again, which did two things for you. First off, it fired your IFF back up, your identification friend and foe system, which is what allowed other airplanes that were looking on radar to see whether you were friendly or not. So you you started squawking your mode four, which is our friendly squawk, um, to let people know we were friendly. So that if somebody did happen to catch a glimpse of us, they didn't wonder who we were, we could start or transponder. And the other thing is that if you needed to talk, you could, or more importantly, you could listen to the, to the air war as it was developing over the radio. And, and one of, one of the things I distinctly remember coming home night one, um, was I was flying over, I was off El Tocadillo, I was heading back home and I heard, um, one of the Eagle guys say, you know, there's a guy taxiing out on the runway. Looks like he's getting ready to take off. Yes, I see him. And I'm thinking, all right, so my air cap, the guys that are protecting everybody out there, are literally watching guys taxi out to take off, and they're waiting to jump on them. So I felt pretty secure from that perspective and the fact that, that the air cap was out there doing its job. And, and meanwhile, I was just trying to sneak home as this uh, this tiny little stealthy uh, guy flying through the center of this whole thing. So, um, did you ever was, wish you had guns was, and missiles on that thing? Did it ever? Did you ever feel like you ever <laughs> needed them? I mean, because you're once you drop your ordinance. I mean, even with your ordinance, you're just kind of, you know, it's you're just kind of naked up there. Other than you're wearing a, a, a nice black suit. True, and and, uh, and that's what you 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 that's what you put. That's the basket you put all your eggs in, right? So, um, so we used to we used to laugh and, and say that that. Uh, Guys who were looking for us, and we flew exercises against other airplanes and stuff. Um, and, and I flew the F-15 after I left the 117, and I talked to a lot of guys who were flying the, one, the F-15 during Desert Storm in the same area as flying the 117. And and and, and trying to find us was kind of like the joke was it was trying to trying to find a armadillo in the dark with a hammer and a bad <laughs> flashlight. So. <laughs> So if you find the armadillo, it's going to be really bad for him. But the chances of finding him with a crappy flashlight in the dark, not so good. So right. the bottom line was we felt pretty secure as long as it was dark. We felt pretty secure um, in the signature uh, of the airplane, keeping us um, keeping us protected. Now, you know, moonlit night, there are a lot of, of other factors going on, you know, but for the most part... Um, you relied on the signature of the airplane keeping you safe. And, and I think the, the track record of the airplane was such that it did. We found out that it did keep us safe. So your plane ended up being enshrined at the at the Reagan Library. It is, it is now known, I don't know if it was known previously as, but it's now known as the Unexpected Guest, which I think is just an incredible name for a, for a 117. I don't think it gets any better than that as a, as a nickname. How did that plane end up having that honor? And I mean, it was your plane that's, very special. 
Yeah, so um, so uh, a quick aside on unexpected guests. So um, sometime about about the Desert Storm time frame, in fact, most of it started while we were deployed, um, they started relaxing on some of the, uh, on what we call the nose art of the airplanes and stuff. So the, um, and the nose art in the airplane obviously wasn't on the nose, but what they, what they started doing was painting um, the classic nose art, right? Goes back to World War II. You see it painted on uh, on, on Chuck Yeager's airplane, Glamour's Glenis, all the way back to uh, the early World War II, right? Guys are painting their nose art on the airplanes. Well, on the 117, they started painting nose art on the inside of the weapons bay, a nice big white canvas uh, of the different airplanes and stuff. And, and a bunch of the... Um, uh, bunch of the airplanes picked up their their nicknames, uh, Toxic Avenger, and and um, my crew chief was a kid named um, uh, my my crew chief um, really liked this uh, '80s uh, alternative British band called Demon. Um, God only knows, I'd never heard of before this and stuff. But um, is it punk? It's uh, got to be some punk thing. Yeah, it's it's some it's some British punk thing from the early '80s and stuff. And they had a they had an album called Unexpected Guest, and the, the album art looked kind of interesting. And he just kind of saw that and he goes, "Hey, what do you think?" I go, "Hey, I'm all over." His, uh, so Stubby Cassidy, my crew chief, like, "Okay." So we we painted Unexpected Guest on the airplane, and he he uh, helped design the artwork and stuff. And and it was it was a great esprit de corps builder for both the crew chiefs and the and the uh, and the pilots to have the the art on the airplanes and stuff. And you could only see it when the airplane was back in the hangar because that's the only time you opened the, the bay doors and stuff. So, um, and then in, well, when you uh, apply that name to when you think of unexpected guests, you, it's, it's funny because you don't, when you have a party or something like that, it's always the guest right. that shows up that you don't want, but this would almost be like your unexpected guests. You have Thanksgiving dinner and you're watching football and, and with your family. And then all of a sudden you go back into the kitchen and the Turkey's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Some dude had climbed in the window and taken the turkey and got out, and nobody even ever knew he was there. Right, right. So it <laughs> it was very it was uh, very appropriate, and uh, and the um, and the artwork was actually pretty well done considering where we were and what they had to work with and stuff. But um, and then in uh, in the early uh, let's see in, in the late teens, I want to say around seventeen or eighteen, I got a call from the Reagan Library telling me that the um, if the Air Force had decided to release a number of 117s um, to various uh, places, uh, mostly um, prestigious uh, museums or the presidential library. And one of the first coming out was, was 803. It was going to go to the Reagan Library. And um, because, of, uh, the, because of the time frame, because of Reagan's influence on defense policy in the 80s, because of the deterrent nature of uh, his administration, um, they, had, they had wanted an airplane that had a a uh, desert storm history. So they, they chose the 03 and they wanted to paint it up in, in the uh, desert storm um, colors and the de- it's it desert storm mufti, shall we say. And um, so, so I got a call that uh, they were going to refurbish uh, my airplane and bring it out. And um, the Reagan library is very gracious in letting me be a part of the, the whole process and stuff. It, it uh, was really um, a um, once in a lifetime event. The amount of effort that went in, um, both on the Air Force's part, the museum's part, the Lockheed Martin's part. Well, yeah, it was, to, it was a one million dollar restoration. This is this is no joke. Yeah, that, that's uh, um, Lockheed did tremendous work on it. Um, the museum did tremendous work on it. The engineering 
uh, involved in putting it on a stick. You know, the uh, if you've ever seen the airplane at the museum, there's a, a giant pedestal coming out of the ground, and you might think, huh, it's a pedestal coming out of the ground. But the engineering that goes into the substructure that holds that up, um, that, that goes down almost 50 feet and, and actually attaches to the to the museum base to be earthquake and wind and everything else that they have in California proof, um, it was no small endeavor. And then um, the uh, the unveiling at the um, Reagan National Defense Forum uh, was just a tremendous event, and it was it was. Uh, they, they went all out, and, and everybody involved, um, from the Air Force through the museum, through Lockheed, um, through everybody that, that uh, had a piece in it, just did a tremendous job. So why why this plane, or not you know not unexpected guess in particular, but did the F one one seven represent something with Reagan and the Reagan Library? Why that plane? Why have it there? Sure, great question. So let me run you back for just a second. So. You know, in the 60s and 70s, you had this enormous buildup of Soviet conventional forces in Europe and throughout the world, and, and it was all covered by this supposedly impenetrable barrier called their Integrated Air Defense, or IADS network, right? And surfaced air missiles all linked together with early warning radars and centralized command and control deployed throughout throughout Europe and throughout everywhere where the Soviets had deployed forces. Um, and the Soviets relied on this network to protect not only their fielded forces, but also their strategic targets, their center of gravity. All of their high-value targets were under this umbrella of an integrated air defense network. And, and then you had conflicts like the, v- the Vietnam War and the 1973 Arab-Israeli conflict that really underscored the devastating effect that surface-to-air missiles can have on tactical air forces and the, the degree to which an integrated air defense network can blunt or, or in some cases, nullify um, tactical air power. And, and, of course, that's the heart and soul of the U.S. military, right, conventional right. forces. So, and, and when you feel that you're, all of your high-value targets are outside your opponent's reach, you know, it doesn't deter you, it emboldens you, right? So imagine a boxer for a second with a long reach advantage over his opponent. He spent a lot of time developing those arms, big muscles, guys. And he knows the other guy can't close because those long arms are going to hold him out and pummel the crap out of him, right? Um, you think he's deterred from acting? No. If, if anything else, he's emboldened. And, and in the late 70s, mid to late 70s, you saw a lot of Soviet aggression, you know, in, in late 70s in places like the Mideast and places like Africa, Afghanistan invasion, stuff like that. So you, you looked at a, at a Soviet Union that was pretty emboldened at the time because they felt like they were they were pretty much insulated from from anything. Um, and what stealth did was fundamentally change that equation and, and suddenly renders this impenetrable air defense umbrella largely obsolete, right? So for the first time, we can confidently hold targets at risk that in the past might have seemed untouchable or at least untouchable in anything short of this full conflagration, which nobody wants to stay with. So track back a second to the boxer analogy I, I gave you a second ago. So you got the guy with the big long arms and the big and big strong guy. Now now blind him, right? So you you take away sight from the long arm boxer and suddenly the calculus changes immediately. Mm-hmm. Those those big long arms he worked so hard to develop are useless, right? Because he can't hit what he can't see. That good old Mr. Short Arms there can come in and, and attack that guy pretty much at the time and place of his choosing, right? So um 
knowing that your enemy can constantly hold targets at risk um, that you value is the very definition of deterrence, right? So, you know, rather than being emboldened, they're deterred from acting. And what stealth did, and the 117 being the the pinnacle of stealth at the time, right, this first operational stealth aircraft um, deployed, what stealth did was return the deterrent value to U.S. military policy by essentially notifying the Soviets that what they thought was a shield was actually kind of a sieve. So without a fundamental change in technology, doctrine, policy, deployment of forces, and, and everything else, you know, stealth essentially rendered their investment in integrated air defense network, you know, largely moot. So here you are taking an enemy's largest piece off the board, which is, you know, kind of the heart of deterrence. So, so this is essentially the definition of peace through strength. They don't, we don't have to do anything, but it really just kind of nullified the strength that the Soviet Union had, which was their military. And without that, I mean, it could have been part of the tipping point for the collapse of the Soviet Union. Right, and very much so, right? So so all of a sudden, you know, they have this giant investment. This is what we're going to hide behind. This is what we're going to shield. And, and suddenly, you know, instead of this big, long wall, you find guys that are inside the wall, inside your defenses. And, um, and you sit, and like you said, I have a piece of strengthening, right? I don't have to... I don't have to employ it. I just have to have you know that what you thought was safe, a safe haven is in fact targets I can hold at risk. So, you know, here we have the, the, the whole Reagan peace through strength thing. And one of the fundamental tenets of that is, you know, nullifying what is essentially his, his, the Soviet Union's biggest strength. And that is this integrated air defense network that suddenly stealth says, Hey, remember all that money you invested in the last 30 years on this whole network? Sorry, you went the wrong direction. So it was this disruptive technology that changed the calculus and really underscored the value of conventional deterrence for the United States. And and to me, right, I didn't get a vote, but to me, that's why the 117 is the perfect um, symbol for, for Reagan's deterrence strategy of peace through strength and, and then why the Reagan presidential library becomes kind of a natural home for the 117. That's awesome, man. I I think we can leave it at that. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Is there anything else you want to you want to drop on us before I let you go? Um, no, I'll tell you one funny story. If you got yeah. thirty seconds, I'll tell you one funny story. So, um, uh, February 8th, February eighth, uh, um, kind of a normal mission. Target was the um, Altamonic Chemical Weapons Complex, specifically the chemical storage bunkers at Samara. They have these eight cruciform shaped uh, um, earth mounted reinforced concrete bunkers. They were suspected of storing chemical weapons. Uh, really challenging target because of the hard concrete and because the dirt limits the penetration of the weapon, makes yep. it a difficult target for the IR system and stuff. So I was tasked with two of the bunkers, successful drops. I'm heading back home. Um, don't think anything of it. Uh, come back in, land. And as I taxi back into the hangar, as I'm turning left into the hangar, the first thing that I see as I'm turning left is the wing commander um, standing there waiting for me. And, and Are you thinking, oh, shit, what is, did I do wrong? <laughs> That is never a good thing, right? Right, right. So, it's not good. It's like when my wife is standing so, there with her arms crossed when I come out of my office. Right, I just right, know I'm about to get right. bitched at. Right. Probably not standing there with a public clearhouse sweepstakes check, right? No, so, no. My, I have two immediate thoughts. First one is, what did they do wrong? And my second thought is, how could word have gotten back here so fast that he's waiting for me, right? So it must have been really bad. And how did the word get back here so fast? So as I turn farther into the hangar, thinking about this, I'm looking at him. As I turn back in, on the left-hand side, about my left kind of clock, 
all of a sudden I see one of the crew chiefs with this big sign that says 1,000th bomb dropped. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. And there are other people kind of standing off the left side. I'm like, oh, okay. And if you knew our wing commander at the time, um, there was, there's no doubt in anybody's mind if he's waiting for you in the hangar, it's not, you know, a good thing, right? So, <laughs> to be so fair, I mean, you could have just turned the plane around. They never would have been able to find you. I don't know how much fuel you had, but it is yeah, a 117. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, those thoughts cross your mind as you text me back in and stuff like that. But other than that, um, uh, I, 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 but it's just it's just one of those things that that you look back on and you kind of laugh about it now. At the time, it was like, oh my god, and and it it, it runs into the classic, um, you know, fighter pilot mentality of you know what are you afraid of? Are you afraid you're going to get shot at? No, I'm afraid I'm going to screw something up and somebody's waiting for me when I get back to the hangar. You know, that's your big fear. Right, but, uh, your ass chewed out. But it, it's getting your ass chewed out. You know, is it getting ass shot? No, it's getting your ass chewed out. So, anyway. <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to hang out with us, man. It's been great. Uh, I, no, no problem at all. It's really been a great time. I really enjoyed my time here. And uh, and I really thank you for doing this. It it, uh, it really highlights some some interesting pieces of history that, you know, might otherwise kind of disappear. Yeah, I think we're going to – I'm going to make a trip. I, I've always wanted to go to the Reagan Museum. Um can probably say this off the podcast now because I try to stay apolitical as much as I can on the podcast, but I'm a big fan of Reagan and I, I've always wanted to go there and see it. And, uh, the plane being there and being able to see it and see the plane that you flew and now talking to you, it's something I'm going to have to make a trip for to do, uh, at some point. Yeah, it's, it's, it, the display is great. They've got a, a great, they did a great job with it. Um, and just, just marveling at, at how they put the airplane up and, and uh, some of the stuff they have to support the display is terrific. Great bunch of folks, and they did a super job to display. All right, man. Take care of yourself. I appreciate it. All right. You bet. Thanks a lot. You bet. Bye-bye. Many thanks to Scott for coming on the podcast. And honestly, what a what a really awesome person to talk to for all this. What a hell of a plan, hell of a name. You know, now we understand why this thing is outside the Reagan Library. Yeah. It epitomizes President Reagan's peace through strength. Yeah, you know, it makes sense. It this was it's it. This perfect. plane ended the Cold War, and then it ended the Gulf War. I mean, obviously, there's so many more cogs, right? right that are turning. But in as this, you said, this this was kind of the tip of the spear, right? And it, without without its ability to destroy airfields, destroy our artillery, and destroy barracks and tanks and everything else, it would have been to basically soften up the enemy, right? This is basically this this thing's entire purpose, and. Um, thanks to everyone else that came on the podcast. This, yeah, this it, whole span of how many episodes is it now? This is six, I think six, six or seven episodes of the skunk works division of Lockheed. It's just, it's so cool. And I do want to give a little, uh, I'll call it a capstone of what we've been talking about with skunk works. Skunk works was actually given an official moniker. It's no longer, it's still called skunk works in the halls, but officially it's called Lockheed's advanced development program, but its mission has not changed. That sounds way lamer. It, I got it. it. I, why, yeah. why get rid of it? Why? Why would I, you get rid of skunk works? I think it's still known as skunk works, but officially it's Lockheed's advanced development program. Well, officially that name sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but as we know, their mission has not changed. It's building the world's most cutting edge technologies in abject secrecy at a pace that's impossible to rival. And the essential spirit of this whole Skunk Works division was captured perfectly by the iconic Kelly Johnson in his logbook. He kept logs every single day. And so this is on July 15th, 1955, when they're in uh, basically in this frantic race to complete the U2 for its first test. And I love this quote. Airplane essentially completed. Terrifically long hours. 
everybody almost dead. <laughs> but that really was just like this, this sense behind the scenes of Skunk Works. I mean, it was everyone on deck, everyone work your fingers to the bone because we're doing this for basically America. Right. Just for everybody knew they were protecting in the way of life here. And think about what Jet said in the interview last week when he says, I couldn't figure out how they were, how many, so many people were able to keep this, keep this secret. Yes. And basically it was, they were all patriots just like him. Yeah. And that was it's so cool. Is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Skunk Works over the years has earned a total of six Collier trophies, which is the most prestigious award in the aeronautics industry. They've been collected by the Skunk Works division since 1943, but it's the division's most impressive legacy has yet to be written. See, as Skunk Works program manager aptly stated, quote, the problem with Skunk Works programs is that they typically get credit for changing history long after they actually changed history. Well, that's what happens when everything's a secret. <laughs> and as some of our previous guests have basically alluded to, they're like, yeah, you have no idea what's going on over there right now. And that's just so amazing. I want to remind everybody to follow. We're not allowed to say subscribe anymore. You're supposed to say follow the podcast. Wait, why can't we say subscribe? Because apparently it means people think it costs money you know, when you subscribe. Oh. You subscribe to Patreon. Okay. All you got to do is follow the podcast. I it's like free. That. Hit that subscribe. Okay, but it follow. still says subscribe. The I button know. says subscribe. I know. This okay. is just what you're it's supposed to do. It's a free subscription, Chris. <laughs> yes. What's better than that? <laughs> nothing. Yeah, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> and uh, also head over to patreon.com slash overcrest. That's We've right. got some exclusive inter interviews with some other Lockheed and folks. And if you liked the episode on Friday, if you yeah. checked that out about the history of the garbage truck. There's all kinds of stuff like that there, yeah, too. That was one that uh, we released just to give our one kind of a taste of what's behind the door. So I'm going to take a big deep breath now and figure out what we're doing next because we've been so involved in this. We're going to do a couple interviews, have a couple other episodes out, and I know Jake has some ideas of some I some do have projects, some really cool projects uh, similar ideas. to this in scope that we're going to work on because I really enjoy doing this. And from what I can tell, everybody else did too because it's been like the craziest couple weeks we've ever had on the podcast ever. <laughs> My favorite quote is, you know, I forget who we were saying like, oh, this is kind of a big tangent. And you said to me, Jake, this has been 280 episodes of tangent. Yes. That's really what we do. That's exactly right. We should call it Overcrest a pretty good tangent. I like that. <laughs> All right, guys, we will see you on Friday. Take care.